titled Jesus, Son of God, Suffering Servant, and Savior of Sinners. Today we are again in Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 30. Talking about five loaves and two fish. Five loaves and two fish. What do you do when you have a big problem but no way to solve it? No apparent way to solve it. You're facing a huge obstacle but no way to get around it. You've encountered a giant issue without any resources to deal with it. What do you do? When the mountain in front of you is seemingly too high to cross, what do you do? How do you handle what seems to be an insurmountable challenge that you face in your life, in your journey? Jesus and the disciples were faced with a tremendous need here in Mark chapter 6 without seemingly any, well, enough physical resources to meet the need. So Jesus did what only Jesus could do because of who he is. He did the miraculous. You know, this episode in Mark chapter 6 is one of the greatest gift-giving examples ever. And the story is all the more poignant during this season when we celebrate the greatest gift ever given to humankind. Jesus, the Savior, given to us. I want you to read along silently with me just very briefly as I read Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44 for us. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Remember, by the way, this is on the heels of their first missionary expedition that Jesus sent the twelve out on, and they have now returned to him and reported to him. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw such a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. 
Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. <laughs> then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. He then gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Wow. Jesus listened intently to the reports his disciples were giving about their encounters while on mission. And after such an important mission, Jesus could discern that the disciples needed some time away from all the people constantly coming and going as a result of their ministry. The scripture says in verse 31, as we just read, then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Jesus and the disciples were besieged by an incessant swarm of people, thus making it impossible for them to even be able to sit down to a meal and eat. Such a crush of humanity underscores the great need that people were experiencing. The reason so many people were coming was because they knew that Jesus had something they needed. They knew Jesus had what they needed. They knew that Jesus could meet even their deepest, or what they thought to be, their deepest, most important needs. Jesus also knew what his disciples needed. This is why he ordered them to get away with him so that they could have some time for rest, relaxation, and reflection. But even more than rest, relaxation, and reflection, they needed uninterrupted time alone with the Lord. Jesus saw that. He knew this. He recognized it. They needed uninterrupted time alone with the Lord. Private time. Quiet time. Intimate time in the presence of the Lord is the most important time in the life of a Christian. Private time, quiet time, intimate time alone with the Lord. You know, I, I wonder how many of us who are Christians in the church, how many of us make time, take time, and practice making time to be alone with the Lord in private prayer 
and devotion. Time spent alone with the Lord Jesus. Time in prayer. Time spent in prayer. Time spent reading scripture. Time spent confessing and repenting of our sins. Time spent seeking God's wisdom for all of our choices. Time spent in contemplation on the things of God. The disciples needed time alone with him. We need time alone with him in our lives as Christian disciples. Now, brothers and sisters, I think it's safe to say that far more than they could have ever imagined in the first century AD, we who are Christian believers today in the 21st century AD have far more distractions and far more things pulling at and competing for our attention 24 hours a day, seven days a week. For them, the world didn't operate 24-7, meaning people didn't. When sundown came, people slowed down and went to sleep and rested for the night. I mean, if you had to have light in the middle of the night, you had to light a candle or you had to stumble in the dark. There was no such thing as electricity. And with no such thing as electricity, of course, then there was no such thing as appliances as we know them. Stuff turned on all the time, stuff running all the time. And until just recent decades, there was no such thing as televisions, you know, television, that, that wonderful invention of technology that never sleeps. <laughs> and now, of course, the internet which, among other things, is a byproduct of this grand, uh, you know, innovative age of ours. It never sleeps. So as a result, we have all kinds of things, and especially social media, pulling at our attention, clamoring for our attention all the time. I mean, you can sit down at night uh, getting ready to go to bed and turn on Instagram, and three hours later, you haven't gone to bed. If you're not careful, <laughs> I think we all, or most of us at least, can identify with this in some way or another. You click on something. I mean, now think about that for a moment. They couldn't have imagined holding some sort of device made of some sort of materials that had, as of yet, not even been invented, that you could hold a device in your hand and it would be as if you were holding the entire world in the palm of your hand. Well, it's access uh, to the entire wired and connected world in the palm of your hand. Do you get what I'm describing here? Because, see, when you and I are living in the middle of this, a lot of times when you're swimming in the middle of something, you really don't see what you're in the middle of. And you don't always get the significance of what you're going through when you're in the middle of it. So sometimes you have to take stop or somebody has to stop you and say, wait a minute, do you realize what you're living in the middle of? Do you realize what it is you're actually experiencing and the significance of it, the gravity of it? Do you understand where you are and what period of human history you are living in? 
everything in this world, it seems, distracts us from the most important things in life. <clears throat> Social media, for example, which is supposed to, I guess, help people socialize, <laughs> actually keeps, has a way of keeping people from socializing, causing some people to slide into antisocial behavior and causing other people to simply not even connect or socialize with the people in their own house. Well, that's not good, but nobody seems to know that anymore. Just pull a device out and go wherever you want to go on it in your mind and on the screen. They didn't have this problem. They, they didn't have this kind of problem. Now, yes, they had plenty of people pulling at them and clamoring for their attention. But <clears throat> I dare say most of the people pulling at them and clamoring for their attention had to do with Jesus and what the Lord Jesus could do for them in their lives. They, they realized they were needy. They realized that they needed what Jesus had and that Jesus was and is what they needed in their lives at that point in time. That's the reason why when they discover that Jesus and the disciples are, you know, launching out and going somewhere, they identify, figure out where he's going. But when it comes to time alone with the Lord, everything has a way of robbing us of it. We have a way of robbing ourselves of it. And so back to, you know, your little Instagram foray on the side of the bed until 2 a.m. in the morning finds you having surfed the social media website and all of the nonsense and humor and everything else that is on it. And then you fall over into bed asleep. But you didn't pray. You didn't stop or pause. In fact, you didn't remember to pause and ponder what God had done for you during that day. You hadn't paused to thank him for all of his blessings and all of his grace to you on that day. You may have fallen asleep with a, a smile on your face because of something you saw on social media. But, but did you spend any time alone with the Lord? This is a question for all of us to evaluate ourselves with, to take a good look in the mirror, to do some regular self-evaluation because we all can get caught up in this stuff because the world has manufactured multiple millions of distractions and things designed to grab our attention. By the way, it makes me wonder, I mean, this, <clears throat> this isn't part of the message per se, but it makes me wonder, why do they want my attention? People and groups of people spend billions of dollars a year for your attention. There must be something important about your attention. 
or they wouldn't spend billions and even trillions of dollars globally to get your attention. Have you ever stopped to think about it? Well, if you haven't, don't be embarrassed or ashamed. Most of us haven't. We just go about our lives and we devote all of our attention to the things that have a way of getting most of our attention. And because we can't see God, and we'll understand why we couldn't see him soon enough with the naked physical eye. Because we can't see God out of sight, out of mind, for far too many of us. For these disciples, they had the unique and profound benefit of having the Lord in their sight. <laughs> and they were there with him. And he had beckoned for them to come away with him. Time spent in the presence of the Lord is time never wasted. Whatever you do, Christian, be sure to regularly spend private devotional time alone with the Lord, praying, reading his word, the Bible, seeking him with all your heart, giving him your undivided attention. This is how you will gain spiritual strength and wisdom the spiritual strength and wisdom you need in order to grow and succeed in a manner pleasing to God. Come with me are the most affirming words of embrace and care and love. Jesus says to them, come with me. You know, let me just use a little bit of a comparison to help some of us grasp the significance of this. You know, if someone who is big and important and powerful and popular said to you, come with me, you know, you got a letter from the White House and the President of the United States wants you to come or, you know, perhaps your favorite entertainer finds out about you in some kind of way and says, come, I want to meet with you. Or even simply the big boss at your job says, I want to sit down and talk with you. You know what? That gets our attention quickly and starts our minds to thinking and even racing. What do they want to talk to me about? Oh, my goodness. I'm amazed that they even know who I am. Well, the God of the universe and the Son of God are saying to us all the time, come with me. They're the most affirming, embracing, caring, and loving words of all time. Why? Because when God says them, they have meaning and significance that no human could ever have. When the Lord says, come with me, it really means something. And it really means something far greater than anyone else could ever mean. Jesus beckons us to come with him to a quiet place of spiritual rest, reckoning, 
repentance, refreshment, and rejuvenation. Only Jesus can give us the true rest our souls need. There's nothing more personally meaningful, impactful, powerful than being alone in the presence of the Lord. Anyone, any Christian who has ever done this knows exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't quite understand what I'm talking about, you haven't done it. You haven't done it. At least you haven't done it long enough. For most of us, time spent with God at its best is a five-second kneel or a bow or something of that nature or a thought about God on the way to ten other things. That's not what we're talking about here, and that's not what Jesus is calling them and us to do. Jesus said, come away with me. Come with me and let's get away. However, as the story continues, we see Jesus and the disciples going to a solitary location only to find the crowds discovering their route and arriving there ahead of them, according to verses 32 and 33. <laughs> so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving <laughs> recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Wow. When they landed, or when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. What the Lord wanted to do was to have his disciples alone with him for a time, and they needed that. When they got there, that was not the reality. But now you and I have the benefit and the blessing of all we know what the disciples didn't know. We know what was to come. They didn't know. Okay? So <clears throat> they didn't know how long this discipleship venture with Jesus would last. They were anticipating that it would last a long time and that it would unfold in ways that God had not planned or purposed, at least for this coming of Jesus. They didn't know that, though. They didn't realize, in other words, I'm trying to say to you, they didn't realize that they would only have a short time to do a whole lot of things with Jesus before he would return to his Father in heaven. The mission was that important and that great. So somehow, the word of Jesus' whereabouts and his itinerary traveled faster over land than he and his disciples did on the water. <laughs> when Jesus sees the huge crowds gathered at his destination, he was not frustrated with them. Now let's tell the truth. 
If you're trying to get away, and you and I, we're trying to get away from a whole bunch of crowds of people, and then we get to our destination thinking we're going to find peace and quiet and get there, there's a whole crowd of them. Okay, so what would your response have been? Now, my response probably would not have been rude, but I probably would have sighed on the inside and said, Oh, Lord. <laughs> oh, Lord. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. How long, Lord? When am I going to get some rest? How long, Lord, will it be before I can just get away and lay my head on a, a pillow and pray and fall asleep? How long? Oh, Lord. Hello, everybody. <laughs> How is everybody doing? I didn't expect to see all of you here, but here we are. That's not what Jesus does. He's not frustrated with them. Instead, he had compassion on them. Sure, Jesus and his disciples needed time alone and away. But they would have to wait a bit longer to get their much-deserved break. That much-deserved retreat. The crush of crowds also, by the way, make it increasingly difficult for Jesus to have private time with his disciples. The needs were great. And needy people were everywhere. Such is the condition of this world even today. If you think about it, we can see great need and needy people Everywhere, all the time. You don't have to go anywhere to find needy people. You find them in your own home, in your own family. You find them even in the mirror. Needy people are everywhere. Crawling all over the earth. What, seven or eight billion of them now? Of us? Individuals, marriages, families, communities, states, nations, territories, and continents, and people everywhere are in deep spiritual need underneath all the other needs on the surface of life. What we see in terms of the level of need can be overwhelming, but what we see on the surface is small compared to the need beneath it. It's like an iceberg. What you see on the surface is only a portion of that which vastly exists beneath the surface of the water. That's the problem of the world in which we live. That is the reason why, for example, you know, uh, members of the media, members of the academic community, people who study and deal you know, with trends and human issues from communities all the way to the cosmos itself. Talk about how complicated things can be in life with peoples, with groups, with nations. Well, it's complicated because of all the needs beneath the surface, not just on the surface. You see, 
Adam and Eve's sin complicated things far more than we actually stop to think and understand. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Here Jesus is with his 12 disciples, followers. And really, they're not even at full strength because one of the 12 is not going to be saved. He's following. <laughs> He's close in. He sees and he knows everything. He won't believe any of it. And in the end, he'll commit suicide because of it. Because of the dross and the sin of his own soul. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, Jesus said. The crowds are reflective of great spiritual need. They want more of Jesus because they can't get enough of him. So many were so spiritually hungry. When Jesus sees them, his heart is filled with compassion for them. Compassion is not only a word that is loaded with feeling and emotion. It is a word of action. Compassion empathizes and engages with others who are suffering or otherwise in need of help. Compassion involves action. Nobody who says they have compassion but then doesn't do anything actually has compassion. Compassion involves action. The specific Greek word for compassion, here in verse 34, is used in the New Testament only of Jesus. When Jesus saw all the people, he viewed them as sheep without a shepherd. The scripture says he had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd? Hmm. You know, Sheep without a shepherd reminds us of Moses' prayer for a successor in Numbers chapter 27, verses 15 and following. Numbers chapter 27, verses 15 and following. And by the way, um, jot that down. If you have, for those of you who've been with me, we've been together on Wednesday nights in prayer and Bible study. Just make one note. If you have a new NIV, okay, um, it translates these verses, it, 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 well, it translates verse 15, verse 16 in a sort of an ambiguous way. Um, but if you have the old NIV, the NIV 84, or if you have the ESV, the English Standard Version, um, or one of the other reliable translations, uh, New King James Version, for example. Um, well, let me point it out to you as I go along here, and I'll make the point so that you can clearly understand what I'm getting at. Numbers 27, beginning at verse 15, says this. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord 
the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, who will lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Numbers 27, verses 15 to 17. In some of your, with some of you, if you have the NIV 2011, the new NIV, it says, may the Lord, the God who gives breath to, to all living things, appoint someone over this community. Uh, but the older version of the NIV says, May the Lord appoint a man over this community. Um, well, without getting into a discussion about this, the new NIV is, well, gender inclusive. And there's some passages that I do have a concern with the way they translated them. And I'm saying that as a scholar. Be that as it may, you join us on Wednesday night and you'll hear me talk about some of these things some more when we begin to meet again after the new year on January the 11th. But let me just say this. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. It reminds me, Jesus' words remind us of what Moses said in Numbers chapter 27. When he asked God to appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them who will lead them in and lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is looking upon these people, these massive crowds of people, and they're like sheep without a shepherd. That's why they're pursuing him. That's why they're chasing him. They're not pursuing. <laughs> they ain't too concerned about those who were supposed to have been leading them Apparently, they were nowhere to be found because they were too busy trying to figure out how to stop Jesus. Scribes, Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jewish people. Instead of ministering to God's people. Hmm. James Edwards writes, and I quote, In his compassion, Jesus sees a whole people without direction, without purpose, without a leader, end quote. Jesus exercises his compassion. How does he exercise his compassion? He exercises his compassion by teaching them many things. Now, how would you have expected or anticipated Jesus to respond uh, to them? What does Jesus' compassion look like here? Teaching. Teaching. Now, you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, it's difficult to make the connection. You know, if I see somebody, we see somebody and we have compassion upon them, it seems like, it seems I would have expected Jesus to do something to physically help them. <laughs> That's not what he, well, he, he teaches them, the Bible says, many things. Why? Because Jesus is not only concerned about their physical need, but also their spiritual need. Jesus sees all of it at the same time. You see, this is where some of us get into trouble when it comes to our faith in the Lord. The Lord doesn't respond to our need the way we think he should. Then we become disillusioned about it. When God knows what we need more than we know what we need. 
But you have to trust God enough to believe that God knows more than you do about your need. If you don't trust God enough to believe that he knows more than you do about your own need, then you will become disillusioned with your faith. And I'm sorry to tell you, it's your fault. God never changed. God never moved. You just didn't trust. And in your impatience with God, you stumble and fall and falter in your faith. Because God doesn't answer you the way he... Listen, who left you in charge of anything? That's our problem in the church, not to mention the world, is we think we are in charge of everything and we want to be in control of everything. We're a generation of control freaks and that's why everybody is out of control now. You do know that control freaks are usually people who are out of control, which is why they're trying to control everybody else. Anybody who's trying to control everybody else usually is unable to control themselves within. To compensate for it, and to compensate for the fear and the, uh, uh, the insecurity and instability of their own soul, they try to impose control on everybody else. You see this in families, you see this in churches, you see this in corporations, you can see this everywhere in the world. There are people, <laughs> you know, even some billionaires who seem to be in the news every day, running stuff in the ground and trying to control everybody. $200 billion man out of control. And every, the whole world's looking at it. It's laid bare for everybody to see. You know what you don't want to be? You don't want to be rich and out of control. Because when you're rich and out of control, a whole lot of people who don't deserve it, get hurt. Let me move on. <laughs> Jesus isn't out of control. And these crowds are coming to him, and what does he do in response to their need? He teaches them. Teaching the people was an act of compassion because he fed their souls, fed their hearts, fed their minds, fed their lives. Now, yeah, we're all about helping to feed people physically, yes, and Jesus does that. But that's not the first thing he does. It's not the only thing that he does. We think when we feed people physically, we help them physically, we've done all we're supposed to do. No. You've at best only done half. So he taught them, the Bible says, many things. Now, you know what? Teaching many things takes time. It takes effort. It takes prayer. It takes the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus poured 
of himself into the throngs of thousands of people who were needing, who were empty, who were hungry, and who needed him. This is another problem with too many of us. We don't need Jesus enough. Because we got too much stuff, too many other things, or too much of whatever of this world that we forget how much we need him. If you're struggling in this area, well, it's probably because you've let your situation, your possessions, your success or whatever get in the way of recognizing your need for him. And then God has to allow stuff to blow into our lives to show us just how powerless we are so that we will need him again. Not as though we didn't already need him, but for us to realize just how much we need him. You know, I know whenever I, I, there have been no shortage of situations and circumstances in my life and in my family's life, we had a phase where we needed the Lord to this very day. And the Lord reminds me from time to time, I need you to remember how much you need me. Because if you're not careful, you'll forget. There's a lesson in this for all of us, brothers and sisters. Jesus was fulfilling the words of Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 23, where the Lord says, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. That's the English Standard Version. Hmm. What Jesus is doing here in teaching them many things, he is feeding them spiritually and in so doing, fulfilling scripture, as we just read. For Jesus is the David of whom the prophet Ezekiel writes and of whom God speaks here in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 23. By the way, the context there in Ezekiel 34 has to do with God's rejection of the priests and the prophets of that day because they did not feed the people, they fleeced the people. Instead of helping the people, they robbed the people and ran over them and abused them. In this Old Testament passage, the Lord promised to compassionately pastor, lead, and feed his beleaguered sheep through a specific descendant of David, whom the Lord refers to as David, <laughs> David's descendant. 
And Jesus fulfills this promise by teaching the people many things. Now, Mark's gospel doesn't go into the content of the many things that he teaches them because the point of emphasis is upon who is teaching them. It's Jesus teaching them many things. His teaching was motivated by obedience to God's word of promise and by compassion for the people. His obedience to God and his compassion for these souls compelled him to continue teaching even though he and the disciples were no doubt exhausted from their previous missions endeavors. They have to keep going. He has to keep teaching. Now after Jesus had spent some time teaching, Verses 34 to 35 report, by this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So with dusk approaching, the disciples become concerned that the people needed food before it got too late. But Jesus had a better plan in mind. Verses 37-38 tell us, But he answered, You give them something to eat. <laughs> they said to him, That would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two. <laughs> this is the most insightful exchange between Jesus and his disciples, actually. His answer to their pragmatic request was nothing short of surprising for the disciples. I mean, they would have expected him to say, yes, it is late. Let the people go. They were not prepared for what his answer would be. They immediately wondered aloud how they could undertake such a task as this. How would they feed thousands of hungry people when they did not have the resources to do so? Their answer reflects the common sense manner in which they considered Jesus' challenge to give them something to eat. I mean, you know, it would be easy to be critical of the disciples, but just remember this. We already know the outcome of the story. We already know the end of the story. At this point, they don't know anything. They don't know how this is going to turn out. They don't know where Jesus is coming from nor where he is going. They don't even understand who Jesus is yet. They believe him as far as it goes and as far as they can. But they still have a long way to go with God. So they're simply using common sense. They said that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we, are we to go out and spend that much on bread and give it to them? While it is clear that Jesus 
wants them to feed the people. They have no clue how it could be accomplished. Mm. The disciples were looking at their circumstances and drawing reasonable conclusions as to the impossibility of their being able to do what Jesus tells them in this case. It would take so much money to feed a crowd this large that it was simply impractical, if not impossible. Plus, it would deplete all of their funds, perhaps. It certainly would deplete their funds, if not all of their funds. At this point, they cannot see how this could be done. But Jesus told them to feed the people. You see the dilemma they're in? It's a good dilemma. It's a faith dilemma for them, if you will. At this point, they just cannot see it. This brings us to some very important truths. When God sets an assignment before us, he does not always tell us up front exactly how we will get it done because he wants us first to trust him with the details. We all know the same. For example, when you're dealing with contractual matters, the devil is in the details. Well, <laughs> when it comes to matters of faith, God is in the details. Not the devil. God is in the details. And so it is here. Jesus knew how they would feed all these people, but the disciples do not know. So when the Lord tells them to do something that seems impossible, or when the Lord tells us to do something that seems impossible, we must trust that he knows what he will do to bless us to accomplish his command. Let me give you an example from biblical history. God called Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Moses, the man who killed an Egyptian and buried him in the sand 40 years earlier and ran away to Midian on the backside of the wilderness and stayed there for four decades. God calling him out of the backside of the wilderness to come and lead God's people out of the greatest out of a nation who was the greatest superpower of the ancient world. Now, in order for you to get the magnitude of what I just said, you have to understand that Egyptian history, the Egyptians, if you will, were on top of the world, so to speak, longer than any other ancient empire. And in order for us to just get a glimpse of understanding uh, for just how great they were in antiquity, 
their building projects still exist to this day. 2,000 plus years on the other side, <laughs> in the common era now, not B.C., A.D. You can still get on a plane, fly to Egypt, and visit the Great Pyramids, some of whom date as far back 27, 26, 2800 B.C., they still stand. And they stand as mammoth monuments to the mightiness of an ancient superpower that everyone in the ancient Near East had to reckon with for thousands of years, even when they were down as a nation in terms of their power or influence or whatever, there was internal conflict, even when they were down, they were still in many ways bigger and greater than others. <laughs> they still were a force to be reckoned with, even when they were lacking. And we see this over and over again in the Bible. And there's a reason the scripture keeps telling the children of Israel, don't go back to Egypt and stop talking about going back to Egypt and stop wanting to go back to Egypt. They wouldn't have wanted to go back to Egypt if it wasn't that great. But it was that great. So when God calls Moses to lead the people away from the greatest superpower uh, <laughs> on the earth, how is he supposed to do this? I mean, his, his experience was shepherding the sheep on the backside of the desert. Now, yes, he grew up in a royal Egyptian household. We remember that story. Uh, but that, that, that was the sum total of Moses' qualifications. But then it wasn't about Moses' qualifications, was it? It was about God's calling upon Moses to do that which Moses could not do in and of himself, but that God would do through him. And God did not tell Moses everything that Moses would have to encounter and everything the children of Israel would have to encounter in order for the exodus to happen. For example, God didn't tell Moses before uh, he sent Moses that they were going to get backed up to the sea with the mountains on one side, the sea on the other side, and the Egyptians pursuing and in an impossible situation where their only way out would be through the sea. And in so doing, they would be a part of the greatest salvation event in the Old Testament. When God doesn't tell you up front everything that's supposed to happen, that probably means that God's plans for it to happen are greater then you and I can understand or comprehend when he first calls us. <laughs> I know God sure didn't tell me up front what would be ahead of us when he called me to be the pastor of this church. I'm also glad God doesn't tell us because we'd be tempted to be like Jonah board a ship bound for Tarshish and take off across the Mediterranean in the opposite direction. Wind up in the belly of a fish and back out on dry land somewhere embarrassed and humiliated. 
and got to start over again and do what the Lord told you to do in the first place. Anyway, that's another story. I just want you to see. Jesus told them to do what was impossible for them to do on purpose. You know, we act like when something, when the Lord puts before us something that's impossible, this, this is what we do. We look at the budget. We look at the books. We look at all of the stuff that the world tells us to look at. And then we, we assemble a committee and then let the committee decide whether that ain't God's way. <laughs> What's the matter with us? God doesn't command you to do something and then tell you to call a committee to put a stamp of, appro a stamp of approval on it. God does not submit to a committee. Now, we might have to submit to committees in certain situations, but let me tell you something. Humans are secondary to God. I mean, <laughs> think about it. You know, if Moses had convened a committee about this situation, he had never been leading the people out of Egypt in the first place, because what would they have said? What everybody was saying, we can't do this. And all of his detractors, what are we doing? You're leading us out into the desert to die. They were all wrong, all of them. Mm. So much for the majority being right. The majority is right all the time. God is the only one who's right all the time. Here they are. They outnumber Jesus. If they were a committee and Jesus was submissive to them, <laughs> it would uh, this wouldn't have been happening. No, Jesus said, you feed the people. And he didn't stutter. He didn't stumble in what he said. They were the ones who stumbled, trying to figure out how to do this. He didn't tell them to figure out how to do this. He told them to do it. Some of you, God... You know what? You do better off if you just obey and started doing what God told you to do. Stop trying to figure it all out before you start. You can't figure everything out with God. You can't plan everything with God. You know why? Because you're not God. You're going to be stuck in your own spiritual spin around until you just give up and surrender to the Lord and say, yes, Lord, I'm going to do the last thing you told me to do. And no, I don't have a plan. But that's because I don't need a plan. Why don't I need a plan? He is the plan. Don't you understand that? Some of you go around disappointed and depressed right now because your plans keep failing. That's the problem. Your plans. Give, listen, give yourself to God's plans and the plans will succeed. Listen. Here they go. Um, <clears throat> the disciples needed to learn how to trust Jesus for everything in every situation. They needed to look to Jesus for their instructions on how this impossible task would be accomplished. 
Instead, they started calculating how much when they should have realized that nothing is impossible with God. In response to their question, Jesus asked them to take inventory of what's available. They found a total of five loaves of bread and two fish. And one of the other parallel accounts said this was a little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish. And they took that poor boy's lunch. <laughs> that poor little fellow. They took that poor boy's lunch and came back to Jesus with five loaves and two fish. Good God Almighty. What happened next is one of the greatest miracles ever. Jesus did not waste time discussing and debating the amount of food they found. They would have, listen, I guarantee you, although the scripture doesn't tell, they looking at themselves back and forth and wondering what's going on and whispering and whistling among themselves. What is, what is, what is he doing? What is this? This is how we behave. And if you ever wondered how God sees it, he doesn't look kindly upon it. And he doesn't look kindly upon us for not trusting him. We're doing all this. You ain't trusting God when you're doing that. So, <clears throat> Verses 39 to 41 say, Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also gave the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. Did you get that? They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of, basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of them all, well, the number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Jesus has the disciples organize the people. He takes the meager five loaves and two fish and looks up to heaven in prayer. And then he begins to distribute the food. One might expect the distribution process to end quickly because the food would quickly run out, wouldn't it? That's not what happened. Jesus kept miraculously passing out food and passing out food and passing out food and passing out food and passing out more food and more food until everyone received enough bread and fish to get full. This was not some kind of trick or illusion or magic, it was a miraculous act of the Lord. It was supernatural. It was a display of Jesus' divine power and provision. 
It was yet another proof that Jesus is the Son of God. God provided everything that was needed to feed the people. So Jesus fed the crowd of people both spiritually and physically. He sufficiently met their spiritual needs and their physical needs. And Jesus is still sufficiently meeting all spiritual and physical needs no matter how large the task. Hmm. He just kept handing out food. What did the disciples do? They kept distributing food because he kept giving them food. Now think about that for a moment. They're living in the middle of a miracle. But they still don't get it. Living in the middle of a miracle. Watching the Lord do something that only the Lord could do. Watching the supernatural unfold before their very natural eyes. They're astounded. They're in astonishment. They're amazed. And still struggling. Speaking of the disciples. Well, the people, for their part, they ain't struggling. You know what they're doing? They're eating. That's what they're doing. They're eating. They didn't ask any questions about the food. They knew it was real food. They could see it was real food. They didn't know what was going on or how it was going on. They were just eating. The disciples kept bringing more food. They witnessed this miracle themselves. They participated in it as recipients of the blessing of the Lord. Hmm. What would you have done? What would you have thought had you been in the middle of this miracle? Well, the answer to that question, if you're not sure of it, is what, what have you thought when you've been in the middle of other miraculous things that God has done around you or in your life? Jesus sufficiently Speaking of the total sufficiency of our Lord and Savior, he sufficiently met the spiritual needs by teaching them many things. And then he did not leave them alone. He, he provided physical food for them. He met their physical needs right then and there in order to show his disciples and us that Jesus meets both the physical and the spiritual needs of humanity, and he calls us to do the same. In today's church, we have a habit of, uh, church culture, we have a habit of focusing on the physical and not the spiritual needs in too many cases. And then there are some who want to focus on the spiritual, not the physical. But often it seems to me that there's so many who want to focus on the physical and not the spiritual. But Jesus did both and he has called us and saved us to do both as well. By the way, we don't have to make the message up. We don't have to go figure out and find the teaching. He has given us all the teaching we need right here the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. This is the spiritual food that people need. But let me challenge each and every one of us. You see, it's kind of hard to feed 
someone else food you don't eat yourself or you don't eat enough of. It's sort of difficult to feed somebody else spiritually if you are emaciated spiritually yourself. And the only reason anybody in the church would be spiritually emaciated is because they refuse to eat the food that's sitting there in front of them. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the ancient Israelites following Moses. God rained manna down from heaven. And they looked at it and said, what is it? <laughs> what is it? Literally, that's what manna means. They called it manna. What is it? Food for you. That's what it is. Hmm. Think about it, saints. You know, the reason it may be so difficult for so many of us to share with others is because we don't eat enough ourselves. We don't eat enough ourselves. We don't have enough spiritual strength. We don't eat enough ourselves. And we don't eat enough ourselves because we are, our attention is carried away on too many other things. You see. That's why we need to well, get back to what Jesus said. Come away with him. Spend time with him. Even amid all the needs, you see. So brothers and sisters, if Jesus could meet all the needs of this huge crowd of people, then surely he can meet all your spiritual and physical needs, whatever they may be. Surely he can meet all of our physical and spiritual needs, whatever they may be. And if Jesus is able to meet all our needs, then we ought to trust him with all our needs. Mark chapter 6 verse 52 will tell us that even though the disciples witnessed this miracle of Jesus, they still did not understand because their hearts were hardened. They were not comprehending the significance of what the Lord was doing. Their hardened hearts blinded them. So even though they were witnessing a miracle unfold before their very eyes, they failed to get the point about who Jesus is. Hmm. You know, let me come to a close and a conclusion since the time is far spent. But listen, when you read this story, remember this. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And God always has a plan. The impossible is always possible with the Lord. That's what the angel Gabriel said to Mary, remember, when he announced it to her that she would bear the Savior of the world. He says to her at the end of his statement, for nothing shall be impossible with God. And Jesus gives us here an example of that truth, that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. He can do all things whatsoever he pleases. And for our part, all we must do is only trust him. Only trust him. Only trust him just now.
The song says he will save you. For those of you listening to this message and hearing me, whether you're online or here in person, and you have not only trusted him. <laughs> you know, there's some people who say, I trust Jesus. The problem with that and the problem with them is they trust Jesus and something else. Or someone else. Or other things. That's not trusting Jesus. You don't trust him if you trust him and something else. Or someone else. Equally the way you trust him. No, no. Only trust him is the way of salvation. Only trusting him because ultimately he is the only one who is able to save. He is the only one who is able to do that which is impossible. And in this case, the impossible is salvation. The impossible is our sanctification now that we are saved. The impossible is Jesus having saved us and now making us into his image. Only the Lord could do it. Only the Lord could do this. And the Lord is working on this with these disciples. And 11 of them will eventually get it, though they don't get it right now. The benefit and the blessing that we have is we get to look back on their journey in Scripture and learn from them so that we don't make the same mistakes and miss the same things that they did. The Lord is able to do all things whatsoever he pleases, even the impossible, if we trust him. Do you trust him? Church, do we trust him? We've got to trust him and him alone. He'll take our five loaves and two fish and multiply it. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you for the privilege and the blessing of being recipients of your holy word preached and taught to us from the pages of Holy Scripture as we, your people, are fed by the richness of your word. We thank you with hearts of gratitude for making us to be here from remaking our hearts and our souls to be here to receive the rich, unsearchable treasures of truth that can come only from your word. Thank you, O oh God, for awakening us to these things. Thank you for saving us from our sins. Thank you, O oh God, for strengthening us and opening our minds and our hearts to receive your word. Father, help us now as believers to trust you to believe you, to know that you are able to do whatever you call us to do. You are able to do whatever you please, and all we need is to trust you. We need your plan. You are the plan. So we need you, Lord, in all that we are doing. And Father, we pray for those who are not saved. 
for those who do not know you, we pray, O oh God, that you will help them to realize that you are the God who is able to do the impossible for them even now, and that is to save them from the eternal penalty and consequences of their sins. And to give them a right standing with you, dear Father, through Jesus Christ, your Son, who died for our sins, whom you raised from the dead on the third day, who is seated at the right hand of your majesty on high, who is soon to return to judge the living and the dead, Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray for the salvation of souls, the salvation of sinners, O God. We pray for the strengthening and the sanctification of the saints. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.